Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a president. Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Get those thinking caps on. We're going to think critically and biblically this hour. And by the way, that's not an either or. It is a both and. And we talk often about what's being bought and sold in the marketplace of ideas on this program. That's the genesis of this entire program. And there are some shabby goods, some counterfeits things that are being sold out there, uh, often to uh, the lowest bidder, by the way. But we have to understand that that mess is exactly where we're called to go, to contend for the faith, by the way, to give a reason for the hope that resides within us. And that doesn't happen unless we know what we believe and why we believe it. And therein lies the rub. A lot of us can say, this is what I believe. But then if you get asked the follow-up question, why do I believe that? Then we're like uh, an animal in the headlights of the car. We just don't know how to respond. So being immersed in the word of God is paramount. It's an old, often told statement, but yet it is a transcendent, eternal truth. Why do we keep saying on this program that it was Dwight L. Moody who said the word of God is the straight stick of truth? Uh, You don't have to be a carpenter or a builder to understand this one, but how do you measure a crooked idea if you don't have a metric, a straight line by which you can measure the crooked ideas that are being bought and sold out there? So when the book, The Twelve Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith, came across my desk, written by father and son team Josh and Sean McDowell, I couldn't wait to be able to talk to one of the McDowells about this because Knowing what you believe and why you believe it is crucial. In fact, let me turn back the hands of times years ago. A church that Craig and I attended years ago as part of the membership class, you were required to read Dr. Paul Little's book, Know What You Believe and Why You Believe It. 
And that was crucial in the maturing of our faith because we had no idea where the Lord would end up calling us and what we would be asked to do in that area of contending. But without knowing why we believe what we believe as well as what we believe, well, welcome to Colossians. You're about to be taken a prisoner of war, taken captive through vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the Word of God. I'm so glad that Sean is spending the hour with us. He is the author, co-author, and editor of numerous books, including A Rebel's Manifesto. He's an associate professor in Biola University's Christian Apologetics Program, an internationally recognized speaker, and the host of a popular Christian Apologetics YouTube channel. By the way, I've watched it several times. It's excellent. Check it out. He's committed to exploring the biggest questions about God, morality, and contemporary culture, which means... He never has a shortage of things to talk about. So, Sean, the warmest of welcomes. Thank you. I want to know, I mean, it's almost um, a self-evident truth, but I'm going to ask the question nonetheless. As you and your father were working on this book together, tell me why you felt it was imperative to really go back to basic Christian orthodoxy here, these 12 cornerstone aspects of what we believe. Why now? Well, there's certain things that Christians have always believed, right? Going back to the New Testament itself, expressed in Nicene Christianity through church history. And Christians still, in a sense, believe those today. But I think one of the things that we're seeing, especially with just the spread of information on the internet, there's more confusion by Christians, more doubts and questions from non-Christians, that we we need to go back to the basics, so to speak. And so one is just this shift that's taking place in communication, that there's more challenges to essential beliefs than we've ever seen. That's a piece of it. And I think the other piece is just by dad and I, how many questions we get and the confusion that we see among parents and young people, mm. realizing that when we actually probe and ask some questions, I think this generation literally has a far more secular worldview than they do a Christian worldview. And by this generation, I mean those in Christian homes, those in Christian families, those in Christian churches. And by the way, I know you're aware of this, but you look at these Bible, kind of the state of the Bible studies that come out every year where people study America and beyond. And the kinds of people who say they're Christians, but believed that Jesus sinned, right, believed right. that he wasn't born of a virgin, is kind of stunning to me. So for those reasons and more, we felt like we've got to do an updated version of this book. I'm so glad you did. And, you know, uh, here's where we turn to our mutual friend, Dr. George Barna, and the work that he's doing at the Cultural Recenter at Arizona Christian University. And I expect the world to have these kinds of beliefs, but when it starts working its way into the church, I'm just stupefied. I mean, when you start looking at 45% of people who profess to be Christians say that Jesus sinned, where does that idea come from? And where are you going to get the answer to those kinds of questions? Or uh, you get you take umbrage with the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. These are cornerstones. These are some of the things that you talk about in the book. And we're starting to see this theological drift, if I can put it this way, where there's I don't know. I don't know what the causal factor is. We'll get into that in a moment. But there is clearly a drift in worldview, even among believers. And that's what catches me. I'm to go out into the world. I'm fishing for men, but people who have already made allegedly a profession of faith who don't subscribe to these cornerstones of the faith. I, I don't know how that bodes for the church. I don't know what that says about Christian families. And I certainly don't know what that means as an impact on the nation. So my question to you is, is it as simple as, going to causal factors here, is it as simple as just a wanton abandonment of belief 
in the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God. I mean, one of the stats coming out of Barna is that an overwhelming number of Christians think the Bible contains the Word of God, but is not the Word of God. That's the difference between one end of the Grand Canyon to the other. It is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. So if you don't see the primacy of Scripture and all of the 12 truths that you talk about emanate from Scripture— um, what's the cause? Is it because we're biblically illiterate? We're letting, like you hinted at before, uh, other voices in the marketplace do our teaching rather than the Word of God? What's your perspective on cause? So it might surprise you, Janet, but I think the solution is twofold. And I think belief is half of it. But I have studied almost every single study I can find on why kids embrace the faith of their parents and why they don't. And the largest study I'm aware of I was published by Oxford Press by Vern Bankston in a mm-hmm. book called Passing on the Faith or Faith and Families. And what he showed after the break, I'll come back and make, I think it very clear, the key factor we have to have in place to pass on our beliefs to the next generation. Excellent, excellent. Dr. Sean McDowell is with us for the entire hour. He and his dad have a brand new book out that in my classroom would be required reading. By the way, this is something you should have to build that legacy library we talk about often on this program. It's called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith, subtitled Building Our Lives on the Unshakable Foundation of God's Word. Who can't spend time reading a book like that? Back after this. God is always at work in your life, but most of the time you can't see it or understand it. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Discover how to know what God is doing when life doesn't make sense. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Dr. Sean McDowell is with us, associate professor in Talbot School of Theology's Christian Apologetics Program at Biola. He speaks, he writes, he edits. He's got a wonderful YouTube channel that deals with Christian apologetics. Check it out. It's fabulous. But he and his dad have co-authored the latest book that we're discussing today called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. And the subtitle is why we're having this conversation, Building Our Lives on the Unshakable Foundation of God's Word. So we were going to Causal Factors and you shook us for it in a book called Faith and Family. So please pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks so much. So this study was with four generations, 3,500 people, 35 years, asking what factors are to be in place for people to pass their faith from one generation to the next. And part of that faith includes the kind of beliefs that we care about. You know what they found, Janet? Now I know you know the answer to this. But the answer startled me because it was an academic study. They said the key factor is a, quote, warm relationship with the father, Mm. a warm relationship with the father. So what that means is if we want our kids to embrace our beliefs and Christian beliefs, the way to do it is not just making arguments or giving them information, although we need to do that. It's building healthy, good meaningful relationships. And then in the context of that relationship, being able to speak truth to them. And that's why we wrote this book. We actually call it, uh, on the back, it says relational apologetics for this generation. Mm -hmm. It's relational theology. So a lot of books are just relationships. 
and then a lot of books are theology. But the studies show that good theology is passed on in the context of relationships. That's what sets this book apart, and especially because it's a father-son written together in relationship. We think it's pretty unique. Yeah, absolutely. So is it because our kids need to see us, and this is part of a warm, loving relationship, it would seem to me, if you lived out Christian principles, but do, in the final analysis, I remember Jim Dobson saying this years ago, and I think it's so true, that in the final analysis, values are more caught than taught. So do mm. our children, to put it in our common parlance, do they need to see authentic Christianity lived out in our lives first, even be interested in what our worldview is and why we make the choices we do? Yeah, this is so good. If I was going to sum up, and you can't really give a formula, but if you were to make a formula and pass it on the faith, it would say three things. It would say, number one, you've got a model of faith that your kids find attractive. If our lives aren't compelling, it doesn't matter what we say. So number one, model it. Number two, build a relationship with your kids. And number three, have meaningful spiritual conversations about issues that matter. Those three things, model, relationship, and then conversation is how faith is passed on. When the mm. three of those factors are there, we have the best odds, so to speak, of our kids embracing our faith, which includes the truths we so cherish that we find in, of course, the scriptures, these crucial truths. Yeah, exactly. Now, in truth, none of that's rocket science. It should be just as plain as the nose on our face, but it isn't. And I think maybe it's because in far too many cases, Christian parents lecture their kids or mm. they're told this is the rule. And so why do we have people who are walking away? Because it's the rigidity of rules rather than the preciousness of a relationship. And so if they see only rule, 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 lecture, 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 um, that's oppressive. It doesn't give them the opportunity to think critically. And there's no attractiveness there. Somewhere in this warm, healthy dynamic between parent and child in the household, there has to be such an attractiveness to this biblical worldview that our kids want it more than anything. Am I right or wrong? I completely agree that a lecture, there may be a time and place for a lecture, but that should be reserved. I think the main way I communicate with my kids is the way Jesus did. Number one, he told stories, mm -hmm. but second, he asked questions. You know, we have 339 questions recorded that Jesus asked. We have 262 questions in the letters of Paul. So far more than lecturing my kids, I ask them questions for clarification. I ask questions to make them think. I ask questions to help them see things they wouldn't ordinarily understand. And frankly, a lecture is one way top down. Questions invites conversation. It invites understanding. It invites the other person to think. So when we lecture, no one likes being lectured to. You don't and I don't. Mm -hmm. Our defenses kind of go up. It's just human nature. Right. But when we ask questions, we're invited into something. So that's such a powerful way to communicate with your kids. And by the way, studies show that kids don't leave their faith just because of doubts or questions. They leave their faith primarily because of unexpressed doubts and unexpressed questions. So having the relationship to just mm -hmm. express those and talk about them is more than half the battle. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, and I I love to quote Billy Sunday, who says, being raised in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in the garage makes you a car. So we often hear people <laughs> who walk away say, well, that was my parents' faith. So going to the unasked mm. questions and the unasked doubts, it, 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 without them knowing it, it guts the argument of that was my parents' faith. It wasn't mine. In the Socratic back and forth, they don't know it's Socratic, but in this conversation back and forth in a warm and loving family, doesn't it give them a chance to vet and sift and weigh and apply as they're thinking through these ideas? In other words, I own it because I get it and I want it. Yeah, that's right. That's where it goes from just parroting back what you know a mom and dad or an authority believes to owning it. And it's fascinating. There was a study. It's probably a decade old now, but I think it's really relevant. It was by uh, Christian Smith, and he was talking about kind of passing on the faith. He's a sociologist. He said one of the ways to make theology real for a young person is to talk theology, mm. to discuss it. Because when we speak something, it kind of expresses something in our hearts and helps us clarify what we believe or what we don't believe. So part of owning a belief is just being able to talk about it and express it, and be asked questions and be challenged, and then clarify what we believe. Oh. Mom and Dad, has this got you thinking about the way in which you might redo some things around your kitchen table? You are, after all, the best Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And you're also the ones, by the way, who are most paramount in transforming and transmitting that biblical worldview. Dr. Sean McDowell is with us. He and his dad have authored a book called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. More with Sean right after this. Dr. Sean McDowell is with us. He and his father, Josh McDowell, co-authored a book called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. And as Sean noted in our conversation thus far, this is very unique because it's about relational apologetics for this generation. And that's because Sean pointed out that really and truly, if you want to have your child not walk away from the faith, they need to embrace it with a warm, loving relationship found in the home. I want to hear what you have to say, Dad. I want to hear what you're teaching me. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then give them the opportunity to ask questions back and forth. So as an example, one of the truths is the idea that God's word can be trusted. And your dad starts this chapter, Sean, by saying that he wrote a letter to you and your sister Kelly, and they were 15 letters together. And he was talking during that time when he was talking about um, sex and he was traveling all across the country. But this is a springboard for why we can trust the word of God. And again, knowing that this is about intergenerational apologetics, how was this concept instrumental in your life in helping to build the idea that the word of God can be trusted? Well, let me give you a sense of what my dad communicated to me about sexuality. You remember this well, Jan. In the 80s, he was spearheading the Why Wait campaign, which mm -hmm. was really the first global campaign that dealt with sexual purity long before True Love Waits and other movements like that. And I'm also becoming a young teenager around the time he's making videos worldwide, traveling worldwide, speaking at massive events, and he's sharing this message with me. And I, I remember thinking, guy, if I got a girl pregnant, I would really wreck things for my dad. Like this would be terrible, feeling the pressure. So I went to my dad one day and I said, hey, dad, what would happen if I got a girl pregnant? 
And without any hesitation, I'll never forget, Janet, he looked me in the eyes. He said, he said, son, I don't care if the whole world called me a hypocrite. You and I would work it through together. Mm. Now, that was a powerful way of not just knowing in my mind that my dad loved me, but experiencing unconditional love relationally. That relational experience we have maps onto the scriptures. When it talks about God having an unfailing love, Mm -hmm. if we have experienced that in our relationships, then we have a connecting point from our life to understand God's love for how much he loves us. And when that relationship is broken, it makes it hard and sometimes difficult and almost seemingly impossible to understand a heavenly father that loves us unconditionally. This is what some people miss when they're doing theology is they don't realize how deeply our relationships and our experiences shape how we process truth. But when we have healthy relationships and we express forgiveness, we express unconditional love, we express other biblical truths, then it helps us translate that, so to speak, to God himself and how we relate to God. Yeah, exactly. So on that point, just a quick word to the single mom who's listening right now saying, Mm. I understand completely that then that wonderful way in which your dad expressed his love and truth to you, Sean, he was role modeling the character of God. And that's, I mean, I can understand unconditional love just a little bit as much as my small mortal's mind can contain it. I can begin to grasp somewhat the width and depth and breadth of God's love because I saw it in my dad. I saw the way he loved me. I saw the way he responded. And so that helped you begin to grasp the nature and characteristic of God. What about that single mom who goes, um, I don't have that in my child's life. Now what do I do? Well, first off, I would say I can't just imagine being a single mom and the challenges and difficulties. My hat is off to every single mom. A mom can't be a dad and a dad can't be a mom. But a mom and a dad can love unconditionally, and they can care for their kids deeply. And I've seen some single moms do this heroically, that it might not be exactly the same as how father loves, but gives the connecting points for a young person to relationally know that unconditional love and know what it would be like to have a father. The other thing I would say is this is why we need the body of Christ. No Mm -hmm. parent is meant to do this alone. So we are all supposed to care and look out for orphans and for widows and those from a range of broken relationships and try to live out relationally with them what these biblical truths are. Oh, amen. Such a good word. So uh, if I'm George Barnes, right, and I think he is that a worldview is set by the time they're 13, that eight to 12 window is hugely important in trying to instill this intergenerational apologetic into their heart and mind. If I have an audience of eight to 12 year olds, even if I have a really smart eight or 12 or uh, nine year old somewhere in that window, I don't know that I'm going to get into canonical gospels. I don't know that I'm going to get into codex. I don't know if I'm going to get into, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, et cetera. But how do I yet instill in them the fact that God's word can be trusted I don't want them to just lean on the experiential that God said this and that happened in my life and he was faithful and he kept his promise to me. That's all part of maturing as a saint. But if I'm going to start with the threshold that this word is an error, transcended, immutable, applies to all people, all times and all places. How do I get that across vis-a-vis a warm, loving relationship to my child? 
Well, I think the first thing we have to do is model it. Do we read the scriptures? Do mm. we value the scriptures? Do we love the scriptures? Do kids see us uh, listening to podcasts that are about the scripture and reading our Bibles and talking about it? Even before we explicitly try to get them to trust the Bible, we've got to be modeling it. The other thing is archaeology. I did a recent video on Babylon and the fascinating fulfilled prophecy there. Shared it with my son who's 11. He's like, holy cow, dad, the Bible's true. I was like, I know that dad is actually there. Wow. And he's right in that target zone too. Dr. Sean McDowell is with us. The new book that he and his dad have co-authored is entitled 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. It is relational apologetics for this generation and the next. Back after this. Anyone can read the news. Every day on In the Market, we're committed to telling the news as seen through the lens of Scripture. As Christians, we must be informed about what's going on in the world and respond appropriately. When you become a partial partner, you ensure that we continue here on your station, equipping the church to discuss current events using the Bible as our solid foundation. Why not become a partial partner today? Call 877-JANET58 or go online to In the Market with JanetPartial.org. This really is a unique book about apologetics, and it really is geared on relationships. The idea that one of the ways in which we can make sure that our kids don't walk away from the faith is to make sure that the faith is shared with a warm, loving relationship, particularly with dad. That's why Dr. Josh McDowell and Dr. Sean McDowell have decided that they would co-author a book together on 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. And the subtitle says, Building Our Lives on the Unshakable Foundation of God's Word. But how do we transmit that in such a way where we're not pointing a finger and we're not lecturing, but they see something in us? We give them the space to question, to doubt, to ask, to vet, to examine. And then do they own it? Now, is it their walk with the Lord as opposed to living in a household that was a Christian household, but it really never took up residency in the heart of our children. So one of the truths you talk about is that Christians are a transformed people. So I want to really dig on this one if I can, Sean, because for people who walk away from the faith, very often among the litany of reasons why they've walked away is the hypocrisy, quote unquote, that they see in Christians. Um, And that's because we have a PR problem ourselves, that we make mistakes and we are hypocrites and we're sinners. And so maybe we've promulgated the idea that we come to relationship with Jesus Christ and all things do pass away and all things become new and we never sin again. And we sort of superimpose that last part on ourselves, which means we're never going to make mistakes. We're never going to be uh, people who are poor ambassadors for Christ. It's Lewis's whole idea that Christians are the best argument for and against Christianity. Our kids are picking up on this. So how do we transmit the idea that we are transformed in Christ while at the same time auguring out the argument of hypocrisy? Because Given our basic sin nature, we're going to besmirch the name of Christ simply because of the tug of war that goes in our heart on a regular basis. I think you're right, Janet, that hypocrisy, which is really a subset of the problem of evil in some fashion, Mm. is one of the leading, if not the leading reason many people either abandon their faith or don't want to consider the claims of Christ. They see people not living out the ethic that Jesus taught. They see Christians not being a transformed, different kind of people and just kind of wonder implicitly or, you know, directly, 
why would I really want to be a part of that club? It doesn't appeal to my heart, so to speak. So I think one of the first things we have to do is we just got to do the hard work of looking in the mirror before we blame somebody else, which is easy to do, or frankly, point fingers at somebody that I can't control anyways, who might call themselves a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. Just look in the mirror and say, am I following Jesus? Is my life different and distinct? Would it be attractive not only to my kids, but those who are non-believers? Do I have the peace of Christ? Do I love like Christ? I mean, if we just slow down and look in the mirror first and areas we've fallen short, fortunately, Christianity is a religion of grace and own that grace. So I think it just starts with us. That's the main message I want to I want to put out there. But on a broader cultural level, I think we need to recognize the faults of Christianity, whether it's in the past, people will talk about the Inquisition or Galileo trial, whatever examples Mm -hmm. we point to. Certainly the church has failed in the past. More modern scandals within the church, whether Mm -hmm. it's certain leaders who have fallen, we need to recognize those and own those and not shy away from those, but also highlight the far more positive, beautiful, good things that Christianity has brought to the world. So we can err by only talking about the negative things. We can err by acting like it's all rosy and Christians have never been hypocrites and done bad things. I think we can let the truth speak for itself. But the last thing I would say is when I'm talking with young people, I'll say, please don't look to me as the example of what it means to follow Christ. I'm going to fall short in some fashion. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfectly consistent moral life of anybody who's ever lived. And by the way, he was the harshest critic of hypocrisy more than anybody who's ever lived. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. In your interaction with young people, and depending whether they're your own kids or whether or not it's students or high school groups, is there a common question that comes up about Christianity from that age group that you hear? I'd say there's a common few questions. Uh, There's common questions about the intersection of science and faith. Mm. That comes up in different incarnations in different ways. The problem of evil and suffering is always present. Now, people might not ask, why is there evil and suffering? But the brokenness in their life, the hurt in their life, the relationships that are messed up, wonder why God doesn't fix it. That's a big question. And the other thing is there's a lot of questions about LGBTQ today. It's everywhere in our culture. It's pushed. Kids have friends. They see it on TikTok. So probably science and faith uh, questions of LGBTQ are some of the most common ones that I get asked today. Wow, that's fascinating. So what's in absentia, and maybe it's there, but it's not one of the top three, as you just elucidated, is where are the questions about Jesus? What have we done to not make mm. him so attractive that, I mean, theology emanates from Christ, right? Theology and scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the thread that weaves its way through all 66 books is Jesus. So what are we not doing right? I, I mean, I know that it's easy for us to create a Jesus of our own construction, um, a more tameable Jesus, and uh, one that, you know, he has children on his lap, but when he comes back and there's judgment, not so much. And the Jesus present in the Old Testament is not as palpable as the Jesus in the New Testament. So all of these quagmires that are out there, how there's something about Jesus that sets him apart from every other person that ever walked or will walk on planet Earth. What do we need to do 
to convey that to people who are searching and vetting and examining. What's super fascinating about this question is that Barna's largest study, I believe that they've ever done within the past couple of years, was uh, a three-volume set on youth worldwide. I can't remember how many dozens of countries they studied. And they titled it The Open Generation, meaning that this generation of Gen Zers is open to the Bible, open to Jesus, open to spiritual things, more than I think many people would expect. So first off, we just got to realize that this is not as closed-minded of a generation. They actually mm -hmm. want to know about Jesus. Well, mm -hmm. one, we've got to build relationships with them and step into their world, look for opportunities to talk about Jesus, but then just ask, you know, what is it uniquely about Jesus that appeals to this generation? Now, we can never water down what the truth is, but many things about the kindness of Jesus in our cancel culture, the love of Jesus to those who are kind of on the fringes and marginalized, and our culture today that talks a lot about social action, those can be hooks to engage this generation, to draw them into a fuller picture of who Jesus actually is. Yeah, exactly. And therein lies the rub, and it's often manifest, it seems to me, in the truth in love argument that we hear in the culture. Clearly, Christians struggle in this area. Too often we make it a multiple choice test. It's truth or love. A lot of our cultural debates swirl around the idea, well, that's not loving, that's not what Jesus would do. And those who hold out a standard of truth are hardcore, and they fail to recognize or exemplify the love of Jesus. That's a toughie. How do we get that around our kitchen table first and foremost? Well, I don't have a simple answer for you, and that is perhaps one of the most common questions I get asked. Mm. And here's increasingly what I'm saying to people. I'm saying today because there's impossible situations and impossible scenarios, and frankly, a different view of what love is many times in the culture from what I would argue, and I know you believe, Janet, is mm -hmm. biblical love. Mm -hmm. We are going to have to live in that tension. If you're not living in a tension between grace and love, I'm sorry, between truth and love, you're probably not speaking enough truth, or you've probably adopted kind of a warm, fuzzy, follow your heart view of love from the culture rather than from the scriptures. So I'm always asking myself, do I need to speak truth? Do I need to show love here? Sometimes I'll fall short in one way or the other, but we have to just keep those two in tension today and express them just with the wisdom of scripture and hopefully the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mm, what a great answer. Um, when you're taught, and I know it changes person by person, but is it better for us to start with God's love and then move to the law? And, you know, in other words, the way in which we're supposed to behave his truth, or do we start with the truth and hope that people fall in love with Jesus because his truth is so protective in the final analysis? That is such a fascinating question, and I don't even know that I have a perfect answer for you. I think it has to be some combination of both because mm -hmm. God's love makes sense in light of the law, right? right? Can we fully understand God's love apart from sin and apart from the law? But the law doesn't invite. The law doesn't attract the way that grace does. You know, I guess scripturally, I think about what does it say in Romans? It says it was your kindness that mm -hmm. led to repentance. So we cannot ever compromise biblical truth. 
we have to speak you know in in the the law cannot be compromised that's for sure but in our culture that is so eager to cancel we insult we provoke i just think there's something especially powerful and attractive about forgiveness yes. about kindness about love mm-hmm. that stops people in their tracks more than truth often does yeah Sean, I particularly appreciated when you talked about stopping and saying, do I give more truth here? Do I give more love here? It really is on a moment-by-moment, conversation-by-conversation basis. And if you adhere to the directive in Scripture to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in that space that's been provided through obedience to that Scripture, you send up a prayer and say, Lord, lead me here. Truth or grace, how do I start this conversation? Dr. Sean McDowell is with us. He and his dad have co-authored a wonderful book. It's really about intergenerational apologetics. It's called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith. Back after this. We're visiting with Dr. Sean McDowell. He is the son of Josh McDowell, and together the two of them have written a wonderful book, on apologetics, but it's a different angle, and I so greatly appreciate it being astute to what's going on in the world. This is a timely book. It's called 12 Crucial Truths of the Christian Faith, subtitled Building Our Lives on the Unshakable Foundation of God's Word, and they call it Relational Apologetics for This Generation and the Next, and it's really very much that. So you end the book about talking about Jesus's return. So let me try to mm, squeeze this in again to that paradigm of the 18 to 12-year-old building on the idea that George Barnes says, by 13, their worldview set, which means we got to get to work, mom and dad. So here's what I know culturally. The culture sends me clues that there already is this uh, immense interest in dystopian ideology, <laughs> the best way I can put it. So the apocalypse, uh, the films the day after, the list goes on and on and on. I took time one day to just from 1990s to the 21st century how many films per year Hollywood had put out on films dealing with the apocalypse? And the number has exponentially gone up every year. Now, I have a couple of theories on why that might be, but definitely the target audience would be teens and preteens. So the return of Jesus factors big time into all of this. How do we start a conversation, again, where the world rushes into our kids' heart to try to tell them that it's an abyss, it's nothingness, it's the walking dead, it's zombies, it's whatever. And how do we instead help them to understand that it is with glorious anticipation we look for Christ's return. Let me give a, a kind of a relational strategy for how I do this in general. So my son is 19 years old, Janet, when he was You had him when you were four, old. clearly. Right, exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll take it. When So five years ago, he was 14. He wanted to see this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, by the mm-hmm. rock band Queen. And I had some issues in it that concerned me, like maybe some zombie movie would concern others. And uh, I decided, I took a look at it. I thought, you know what? It's not too objectionable. He's a year older. His mom is fine with it. So I said, hey, buddy, I'd be happy to take you to this movie because he expressed interest in going. If when we're done, you just sit down and talk with me about it. I just want to know what you think. He goes, sure, dad. So I brought him and a friend and spent $100 on tickets and popcorn. And then when we're when we're done, we walk in the house. He goes, okay, let's talk about it. We sat down, I don't know, probably 20, 30 minutes. And I just said things like, hey, did you enjoy the movie? Is it what you expected in the movie? What was your favorite scene? 
Uh, are there any things as Christians we can look into this movie and agree with? Are there any things that give us pause? And just in the context of relationship, we dissected that movie for 30 minutes and then moved on. Mm. This is what I do all the time with movies, mm -hmm. with songs, with events in the culture. I've done that. I don't know that I've done it with a zombie movie yet, but there are some scenes in The Walking Dead that are pure nihilism, mm -hmm. that if your kid was older and mature enough, you could use it to talk with your kids about those kinds of scenes. And so I'm just always looking for a hook within culture, mm -hmm. whether it's related to the end times and Jesus coming back, whether it's related to human nature. There's always some theological connection. I don't preach at my kids. I just bring it up and get them thinking and try to have a conversation as I can. And by the way, Janet, sometimes it's done. I'm like, that was awesome. Other times I'll walk away and I'm like, that's just completely bombed. <laughs> I, it happens. I kid you not. One time we're at the dinner table and my son looks at me. He's probably 15 or 16. He gives me a thumbs up. He goes, good speech, dad. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> he knew exactly what I was doing, but I just laughed. And because we have a relationship and I said, fair enough, buddy. But I'm not going to quit because this stuff just matters so much and we moved on. Mm, wonderful. You know, I we call it cinema theology around our kitchen table. And we have done that all the time. Our kids were growing up as well. Obviously, we made decisions based on discernment and wisdom about what we were going to use as the launch paint, launching pad for conversations and what we weren't going to use. But rather than uh, say, no, you can't, because all you have to do is say you can have fruit from any of these trees, but not this one. And which one do they want to go after? Right. <laughs> so it opens the door for these kinds of conversations to do exactly what you did before, which is absolutely fabulous. So when you're talking to a younger generation, is there, you know, I, I, I think there's mythology in the church that this conversation about Christ's return is age predicated. Uh, I don't think it is. What do you experience? What do you hear and see? Is there an interest in young people in Christ's return? You know, I got to be completely honest with you. I haven't had a ton conversations mm -hmm. with young people specifically about Christ's return, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, I've had a lot of conversations about the end times in general. Right. What happens at the end? Does the universe just burn up and disappear on naturalism? Is Jesus coming back? When is he coming back? Those questions in general, I mean, to be honest with you, the three topics that students love, I've always joked that I'm going to write a book that says demons, sex, and the end times, because those <laughs> are the three topics that students will talk about. So if you're talking about the end times and how the world is going to end, that's a fascinating topic. Mm -hmm. And you better believe students are going to lean in to that kind of conversation. Yeah. And it opens the door, does it not, to talk about Christ's return. Because if, if the Bible says correctly, God has placed eternity in our hearts, they know mm. somewhere that if there was a beginning, there's going to be an end. And Hollywood can't wait to rush in and tell you how abysmal it's going to be, which is the antithesis of what Scripture tells us. It's going to be for those of us who know him as Lord and Savior. So it's those teachable moments, those open opportunities. Sean, you know what's interesting is that we could have simply done nothing but a basic Sunday School 101, where you go through these 12 crucial truths. And they're they're basic. They're absolutely cornerstone. God exists. God's word can be trusted. All have sinned. God became human. Jesus was God's perfect sacrifice. The list goes on. I bet you, friends, listening could finish up the rest of the list. But what Sean does, along with his dad in this book, is it really 
helps us to break this down in such a way that we connect intergenerationally. But Sean started our conversation by describing the environment in which that takes place predominantly, and this is what the evidence shows, these truths get transmitted with a warm, loving relationship predominantly with dad. So they can question, they can vet, they can doubt, they can push back, they can own it themselves when it's all said and done, but they have to see it in you and me first. So, you know what? While this is about intergenerational apologetics, do you know 12 crucial truths of the Christian faith? And if you don't, are you in the Word? And if you're in the Word, has it transformed you personally? And are you living your life with the eloquence of the gospel? That's what matters most in the end. Sean, thank you for a thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for the tremendous tools you and your dad have provided over the years. Thank you for your fabulous YouTube channel. So you can continue to watch that, friends. If you haven't checked it out, do it. It's apologetics, culture, worldview issues. Fabulous. Thank you for being with us, Sean. And thank you, friends. I hope you've been thinking critically and biblically because you've been called for such a time as this. See you next time.